If you have a Bible, you can open to John 9. We'll look at the end of John 9, verses 35 to 41. The text is in the bulletin there, or there are some Bibles available in the back if you need one by the children's supplies. Um, so, I don't know if you guys noticed, but there was something going on with the sun this week. It was kind of funky. Uh, <laughs> there was an eclipse, right? A uh, pretty amazing event, a uh, life-altering event for some of you. <laughs> um, hopefully, you didn't stare at the sun too long without eye protection. You, you probably have done this on non-eclipse eclipse days where you've stepped outside uh, on, on beautiful days where the light is so brilliant, it's unbearable, and you've got to shield your eyes. Uh, even if you're not looking straight at the sun, you're trying to look away from the sun, it's still too bright. Um, uh, that's, that's the thing about the sun. It's the source of all of our light. It's essential for life and vision and to be able to perceive beauty, but it's, uh, it's furiously hot and it's blindingly bright. The same sun that enables you to see can also blind you completely. Uh, just by being what it is, it's both incredibly good and incredibly dangerous. Right? The sun doesn't change what it is, in order to go from sight-giving to sight-destroying mode, uh, to, to go from good uh, to dangerous, uh, it's simultaneously both. The different effect that it has on us depends on our relationship to it, basically. Right? Um, having the wrong relationship to the sun can be damaging to your health, to say the least. <laughs> um, so it's a fair analogy, I think, for our relationship to Jesus Christ. He's at the center of our reality. He's the source of all of our life and, uh, and the light that we have. And, and your relationship to him means that either you see or you go blind, spiritually speaking. Right? Either he's so attractive to you that your eyes are opened to see God in him, or he's so infuriating to you that you clamp your eyes shut and you refuse to know God in him. Jesus is who he is. He's just being who he is. He's both simultaneously um, good and dangerous. And the effect that he has on your life depends on your relationship to him. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning from the end of John 9. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to be a good God, and that you've spoken to us clearly in your word, especially in uh, the person of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we give attention to him and to his words this morning, that we would be made able to see, that we'd be enlightened and illuminated by your Holy Spirit, that uh, we would have the right relationship to you through Jesus Christ for life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So this is the blind man whom he had healed and who had a run-in with the authorities who cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this is toward the end of uh, what has been a a moving account in John. Um, John 9 uh, is, is one of those pretty amazing stories you can just keep coming back to. It's toward the end, I say it's toward the end of the account, even though it's at the end of John 9. It's toward the end of the account uh, because chapter 10 is uh, just, a, it's, the conversation continues. Jesus keeps talking in chapter 10. It's one of those sort of unfortunate um, chapter divisions that are artificially inserted. Uh, so John 10 is a continuation, at least the first part of John 10 is a continuation of this conversation. But <clears throat> it started when, um, after, after Jesus was teaching in the temple during a festival in Jerusalem, he passed by this man who had been born blind. And Jesus interacted with him, and he healed him, and, and gave him physical sight, which is a big deal. Um, but it was, it was very importantly also a picture, it was also a sign of Jesus granting him spiritual sight. That's what we see now, especially at the end of this story, um, that Jesus granting him physical sight, really, really the big deal here is that Jesus is granting him spiritual sight. Now, spiritual sight, I use that phrase, it's a metaphor, and I think once you've reached a certain grade in elementary school, you understand what figures of speech are, right? It's a, it's a metaphor for understanding. Spiritual sight is a metaphor for understanding some very important things about Jesus. We can't see Jesus physically, right? With these eyes, not yet. We can't see Jesus because he is bodily in heaven right now. He's bodily inaccessible to us. But even if we could physically see him right now, even if we could, that isn't quite the same thing as having spiritual sight. There are a lot of people who interacted with Jesus when he was here on earth who saw him, uh, who did not really see him, did not really understand him, right? So you could physically see him and not spiritually see him. Spiritual sight, spiritual sight is more something you do with your heart than with your eyes. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3, the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart. So it's metaphorical language for understanding. To to see Jesus, to really see him spiritually means to, to recognize God in him. It means to perceive and grasp and acknowledge and embrace the truth that Jesus is God that he he really does reveal God to us for our relationship. We can have a relationship with God because we're in relationship with this Jesus. You could put it in different ways, um, that that spiritual sight means believing in Jesus, means confessing him as Lord, it it means trusting in him as Savior or Messiah or Christ, but it basically amounts to some sort of internal apprehending the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. That's basically it. Jesus is who he says he is, and that what he says is true, and that his, his revelation corresponds to, it syncs up with, reality. 
So it was a bit of a process for this fellow, this man who was born blind, and I, I wish we could refer to him by a name or something because it just keeps saying, the man who was born blind, it takes forever. Um, <clears throat> but there you go. It was a bit of a process for that guy to gain clear spiritual sight, to understand and grasp and embrace Christ. Right? It was a process. His grasp of Jesus grew bit by bit, as we see in this chapter, John 9. Throughout the chapter, he, he has increasing uh, ability to perceive who Jesus is as he's faced with, not, not just in conversation with Jesus, but in conversation with other people. He's faced with conversations and, and questions from other people that get him to think more and more about who Jesus is. It didn't hit him all at once. I mean, this might have taken place just in one afternoon, who knows, could have been a couple days, but <clears throat> it really didn't just hit him all at once who this Jesus was, and he couldn't have figured it out on his own. Right. To, to gain clear spiritual sight, it was a bit of a process, and he was dependent in that process. Jesus is the one who set up the whole thing from the beginning. From actually before the beginning, of John 9, before their first encounter, when Jesus is passing by and he sees him, before that, Jesus has set this thing up uh, with his blindness, with the fellow's blindness. God set this up as an opportunity for this, this man to come into uh, a relationship with Jesus, to come to see who Jesus really is. Jesus calls attention to that in the beginning of John 9. It starts before their first encounter. It starts with his blindness, but now it uh, culminates with what we have in our passage this morning, all to bring this man to faith. To bring this man to faith in Christ as being sent by God. So the man who had been blind had been kicked out of the synagogue right before this. His interactions with the religious leaders got him kicked out of the synagogue for not taking sides against Jesus with them. He made the wrong decision in their minds, and so he was kicked out of the synagogue. He actually was thrown to the wolves, so to speak, by his own parents, right, Um, and and kicked out of the synagogue for not siding with the religious leaders against Jesus. And we can imagine the confusion that he must have felt. Tumultuous day or couple days, right? The best thing ever had just happened to him. He could see. He could see. He, He never could see before. He'd never had that experience, and now he could because of what Jesus did, immediately followed by the worst thing, complete rejection on all sides, even his own family. But not on all sides. Not complete rejection on all sides. Psalm 27, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and he found him. He went and found him. He sought him out and he found him. William Temple was a commentator on John's gospel uh, probably about 100 years ago. He said that that is the deepest truth of Christian faith. Jesus found me. The deepest truth of Christian faith, Jesus found me. Jesus finds the rejected. He finds the broken. He finds the dismayed the outcast. Jesus does what we cannot do for ourselves. He's the one who takes the initiative. We did not take the initiative. He took the initiative. He stepped into our world and into our lives purposefully in order to restore us, 
to make things right between us and God. And that, that means the restoration of our faith. It means the restoration of our believing God, our trusting God. That's what it means when Jesus takes the initiative to come and find us. He asks this man in uh, verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And it might seem like a non sequitur, right? Kind of a strange question. Where did it come from? How does it follow from what's led up to this point? The fellow experiences the complete rejection of his people, and Jesus gives him a pop quiz, a theology question, right? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Does it seem like this just flows from what's happened before? It's more than just a question of intellectual curiosity. It's more than just making sure you, you have your theology right. It's a question of trust. It's a question of personal, relational trust in the one who was sent into the world to bring us back to God. The, the Greek word that's translated here, uh, believe, do you believe in the Son of Man, is also equally translated trust. Belief, faith, trust, it's the identical word in Greek. It'd be used interchangeably uh, in translations. So um, he's asking, do you trust the Son of Man? <clears throat> and Rodney Whitaker said, that belief is not merely an intellectual assent to a proposition, but an attachment of trust to an individual as the one who comes from God. So the man who'd been blind understands this. He gets it, and he asks his honest question, who is he, sir, or who is he, Lord? That's what the text says. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him, that I may trust him? So before we get to Jesus' answer to that question, which we've already read and you already know um, who the Son of Man is, before we get to Jesus' answer to that question, we probably need a little biblical background uh, just to back it up a little bit. The man who'd been blind, being a good Jew in Jerusalem around the temple his whole life probably, uh, he had an idea of the Son of Man. You say the Son of Man and it He has an image in his mind what that means because that idea has been shaped for him by the Hebrew Scriptures, by what we have as the Old Testament, right? The Son of Man was a figure, a bit mysterious maybe. He's a figure spoken of by the prophets especially, and maybe the most recognized instance of this is Daniel 7, where, where Daniel is having a vision of the throne room in heaven and, and the Son of Man is the one to whom God gave an everlasting kingdom. That's maybe the most popular instance of uh, the Son of Man occurring yeah, that uh, comes to our minds. But of the 99 times that the phrase, the Son of Man, appears in the prophets, 93 of those are in Ezekiel. <laughs> 93 out of 99. So... Uh, John's gospel and, and his other writings, especially uh, the Revelation that you have at the end of the, the New Testament, John's gospel and his book of Revelation are very Ezekiel-like in a lot of ways, right? I've probably said this uh, at some point in the past, but you should all go read Ezekiel. I think it should be called Ezekiel's gospel instead of Ezekiel's prophecy because you can pretty much find the whole New Testament in the scope of his book in Ezekiel. Uh, There have already been several similarities between John's gospel and Ezekiel, the prophet. 
several similarities in language and themes, and maybe I've called attention to some of those things, but uh, there, there are about to be some very strong parallels, what we have coming up in chapter 10. Jesus continues this conversation that he's started here. Um, Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. And that being reflective of what we see in Ezekiel 34, this whole chapter dedicated to the fact that um, the shepherds, the religious leaders of God's people are totally blowing it, and God's going to come do the work himself. God's going to be the shepherd. I, I will be your shepherd. And Jesus arrives and says, I am the shepherd. So strong parallels there. We're probably meant to think of the Son of Man. When we see that phrase, when we hear Jesus ask that question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Probably meant to think of him as being the figure mentioned so frequently in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel's prophecy. Who is this mysterious figure in Ezekiel's prophecy? Actually, it's the prophet himself. It's Ezekiel. God is always addressing him. He's always addressing his prophet, the one who speaks on his behalf, as the son of man. He says, son of man, hear my words. Son of man, go here and there. Son of man, say this or that. 93 times. <laughs> the son of man is explicitly in Ezekiel. He's the one sent to a rebellious people who's not going to listen. The son of man is the one who listens to God, who eats his word and takes it into himself, really incorporates it into who he is. The Son of Man is the one who declares what he has heard from God. He's the watchman who cries out a warning. The Son of Man is the one who has the vision of the Holy Spirit and the glory and the temple, old and new. The Son of Man is the one who is made to live among and, and see the wickedness of the people that God deals with. To see the wickedness of the people, he's made to dwell in the midst of the sinful people. He's made, he, he, is, he is gravely misunderstood by the people. The Son of Man in Ezekiel's prophecy is gravely misunderstood by the people. And he's the one who groans because of the judgment that's coming upon the people. The Son of Man is the one who calls for repentance. The Son of Man is the one who is asked about the bread and the vine and what these things mean. The Son of Man is the one who prophesies against the false shepherds, who proclaims the coming of God as the shepherd of his people, the true shepherd. He's the one who speaks, who actually commands the Holy Spirit, and the dead are raised to life. He speaks the words of resurrection, Ezekiel 37. That's the Son of Man in Ezekiel. The Son of Man is the human who goes where God tells him to go and does what God tells him to do, who acts on God's behalf in the world, whose kingdom is everlasting. That's sort of the Daniel 7 idea. His kingdom is ever everlasting precisely because it is God's own rule exercised by his representative exactly as God himself would do it. Does that sound familiar? So who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him, that I may trust him? As uh, Rodney Whitaker says, in a particularly poignant way of speaking to one who has only been able to see anything at all for a very short time, 
Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So this is the title Jesus uses uh, most frequently of himself in the Gospels. He, he is the Son of Man. He is the prophet of God. He's God's representative who receives his marching orders from God. He, he just does what his father tells him to do. He listens and obeys, and he repeats verbatim what God tells him. The Son of Man, Jesus, is the one who reveals God, who lives on God's behalf in the world because he is God. He's God in the flesh. And this is what God in the flesh does. When he comes into the world, this is what he does. He orchestrates everything in the life of this man who had been blind to bring him to this point, to bring him to this meeting. He notices him, he heals him, he seeks him out and finds him and brings him to the point of faith. Jesus is the very word of God and everything he says is true. The man who'd been blind immediately takes him at his word. He trusts him. He says, Lord, I trust you. I believe. Lord, I believe. And he worships him. He treated Jesus as God alone ought to be treated. This human being, Jesus. This blind man treated him as God alone ought to be treated. So Sarah read in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So he might have been cast out of the synagogue. He might have been forsaken by his parents and everybody else in society. But here now, he's in the true temple. He's booted out of the temple, the physical place. But here now, he's in the true temple. He's in God's very presence because the one who stands in God's place has come to him and found him, and his eyes were opened, and he saw. He saw God. He saw God in this man named Jesus. And so here you have a picture of the restoration of this man's spiritual sight. It's his apprehension of, of God in Jesus Christ. It's the restoration of his faith, his trust in God. And as such, as, a rest, as the restoration of his faith... It is the restoration of his very humanity because the core of our sin problem, the core of our problem, really, in our relationship with God, since the serpent got to us in the garden, is that we've doubted God. We've, we've disbelieved him. We've distrusted him. We've imagined that a chasm exists between who God really is and what he says and the way that he portrays himself what he says to us, his revelation. We've imagined that there's a divide that can't be bridged, that you can't really know what God is like, who God really is. You might say this or that, you, you can't trust that that's, that's um, in sync with the, the deep reality, and so we've made God a liar. That's what we did. That's the core of our sin problem. We've made God to be a liar, and when you say that about the one who's the source of all reality... <laughs> who's at the heart of all reality, then your world unravels and your own humanity is just obliterated. All the underpinnings of sanity 
are swept away like in a flood. Nothing makes sense anymore if God is a liar. But the worst of it is that your relationship to him is broken. That's a personal offense to call God a liar. We just cannot believe that God would really be good to us. That's what we can't believe. That's what we have such a hard time believing, that God is good, that he would be good to us, that he would love us. That's what we can't believe. That's what Jesus came to fix. That's what he came to fix in us. One huge aspect of his salvation, he did a lot of, you can, you can approach the salvation, the redemption that's in Christ, his restoration from a lot of different facets and understand it a lot of different ways. A huge aspect of it is fixing you so that you can trust God again. And he does that just by being who he is. God in the flesh, the son of man. He shows us in his own person. And his person is the complete, now perfect and everlasting union between God and humanity in one person, fully divine and fully human, together in one person forever. That's who Jesus is. He shows us in his own person God's plan for humanity. Union. Exaltation. Glorification. Don't believe that God has good plans for humanity? Look at Jesus. He is the Son of Man. He stands in God's place for us. He also stands in man's place before God. He suffered for us for the sake of love, and now he's been resurrected. His life will never end. He has ascended into heaven. He's welcomed there. He's seated at God's right hand, and he exercises God's own authority over everything that he's made. He even, he even commands the Holy Spirit. As a human being, he commands the Holy Spirit, and he goes forth into the world. That's God's message to you. That's God's destiny, even for you, not just for his son. And the problem is, um, not everyone likes Jesus. Not everyone likes his kingdom. Not everyone is happy to accept that he is God's representative. People don't like to admit that we need somebody like this. People don't like to admit that they've broken reality, they've broken themselves, they've broken their relationship to God through their rebellion, through their unbelief, through their, at least insinuating that God is a liar, through their sin, right? They don't like to know that they broke everything because of their sin. People prefer to think they've got everything figured out, got everything under control, we've even got God figured out. Because uh, the alternative to that is too frightening. We don't have anything figured out, and we can't. Not on our own. So, uh, so they blind themselves to the truth in, uh, in their denial. Right? So Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. But some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, We're not blind too, are we? That's, that's the force of the text there. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. You'd have no sin, is the, the literal word. But now that you say, we see your guilt, your sin remains. 
So this is the nature of the judgment. We've looked at this before in John's Gospel, uh, especially in chapter 3. This is the nature of the judgment that Jesus is talking about, that he's coming to the world for. Um, He's coming to the world, and he just is who he is. And people break one side or the other on him. They come up against him, and they break one side or the other. He is who he is. And your relationship to him determines the effect of his reality in your life. Like the sun that simultaneously enables you to see or blinds you just by being what it is. Or uh, Origen was a church father in the early 200s. He says, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Um, The religious leaders... The folks who preferred to think that they had it all together were unable to see any good in Jesus. Here's Jesus, same Jesus we know, standing right there in front of them, but they can't see. They can't see what's going on with him. They couldn't see any good in him. They couldn't recognize God in him. They couldn't hear his words with faith. They resisted him. It was their response to Jesus. It was their their relationship to Jesus, or we would say maybe lack thereof. Their relationship to Jesus determined the effect of his reality in their lives. It's like someone who refused to accept a diagnosis of cancer, just la 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 la, I can't I don't want to hear I don't want to hear how bad it is. Right? And therefore refused to undergo the proper life saving treatment. You do have sin. You do have real guilt. You may not understand everything that that means. But let God tell you that. You do. You have sin. You have real guilt. You do need to be saved from yourself. And the only one who can do it, Jesus, he has done it. He has done it. And you need to believe in him. You need to trust him. You need to go to him for mercy for the restoration of your relationship to God. And if you don't, if you continue to insist, I don't have a problem. (laughs) Not that big of a problem anyway. If you refuse to go to Jesus for your relationship with God on his terms, as he reveals to you, then your sin remains, your guilt remains, and you're blind to the truth of God. It's right there in front of you. You've heard it. The best thing any of us can do about this is pray. Pray for spiritual sight. Because it really is Jesus who grants it to us. That's what we see in his interactions with this man who is blind. Most of Paul's recorded prayers in his writings in the New Testament are about this very thing. Ephesians 1, he's praying to have the eyes of our hearts uh, enlightened. Ephesians 3, he's praying that we would be made able to comprehend and know the love of Christ. Colossians 1, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Those are exactly the kinds of prayers God absolutely promises to answer. Jesus says it later in John's Gospel, chapter 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. And this is what he's talking about. So let's take him up on the offer of his mercy and pray. Let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, we live in utter confusion and darkness apart from you. We're like uh, the prophets said, even in in broad daylight, like uh, men groping in the darkness for the wall, trying to find some reference point, and we just can't find it unless you come into our lives and grant us spiritual sight, grant us the ability to see you for who you really are 
according to your word. You've said who you really are, and we need to trust it and live in right relationship with you. We're not even sure whether we see or don't see a lot of times apart from you. Um, We're not sure whether we're blind or not. So we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would grant us true spiritual sight, a vision of God in yourself, grant us spiritual wisdom and knowledge that comes from having a right relationship with you. We pray in your name. Amen.